Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word that so many times from uh, the ancient writings of the Pentateuch all the way through the Psalms into the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, there's the repeated affirmation that these words are your words and that they are they were given by divine inspiration, breathing them out through the writers of Scripture so that we can know that we have uh, your revelation before us. And, Father, we know that, that this is truth. This is absolute truth. This is unequivocal truth. It is truth that is eternal because its source is in the uh, eternal, uh, your eternal omniscience and veracity. So, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we might reflect upon these commands that we find in the Scripture and that we may think uh, profoundly about their implication in our own lives and our own ministry. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're continuing to look at these commands in the Scripture that are given to us as members of the body of Christ that we are to love one another. And we have, as I talked about last week, we have the primary command to love one another and a number of other passages that repeat or reiterate that command. And then we find a vast number of other passages that tell us about doing certain things, such as encouraging, edifying, praying for uh, one another, serving one another. And all of these are just different manifestations of the umbrella command to love one another. We have been studying in Ephesians chapter 4, and the primary governing command is that we are to walk uh, worthy of that new exalted position to which we have been called as members of the body of Christ um, in the new man, as Scripture calls it, and in the body of Christ, and that we have given been given uh, uh, many blessings. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and along with that, we have been given great privileges. And we are in this section of Ephesians 4:25 uh, to 32, which focuses on uh, the 
uh, overall command of not grieving the Holy Spirit. In verse 25, which we spent a lot of time studying, Paul writes, for this reason, because you have already put off the lie. That goes back to what he said in the previous paragraph, that we have already put off the old man. The old man is all that we were in Adam, our position in Adam. Scripture says, in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. So in that position in Adam, our thinking was dominated by different manifestations of the lie. We have studied that in detail. And Satan is the father of lies. And so those who have uh, rejected the existence of God and his provision of salvation live on the basis of delusion, self-delusion, and the lie. And they are, as Paul sums it up in Romans one twenty-two, they are worshiping the creature rather than, or the creation, rather than uh, the creator. And so we have put off the lie positionally, but not necessarily experientially. And then the command is, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And the truth there is not talking about speaking true things as opposed to the lie, but speaking within the framework of the truth, which is the word of God. And the the word of God is stated to be the truth many times. But in the this passage earlier, we have seen that the truth is in Jesus. So we are to speak the truth. We are talk to one another. Our language, our conversation should be within the framework of divine viewpoint, biblical teaching, and not within the framework of Satan's lie and the human viewpoint of the world around us. And the rationale for this, the cause for this, is given in the last phrase, because we are members of one another. That further defines neighbor, not just someone that we uh, know from our, uh, our from our activities in life that may be a believer or an unbeliever, but in this case it is specifically talking about others within the body of Christ. Now, that may not be others within this congregation, Uh, Some of us know each other well. Some of us do not know each other well. Some of us only know each other because we see each other once, twice, or three times a week, and we hardly ever have any conversation with someone who's sitting in another part of uh, of the auditorium. But this members of one another refers to others who are members of the body of Christ. And many of us have numerous friends, close friends, very intimate friends that may not be a part of this congregation at all, uh, but they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have much closer relationships with them than we do from those in this uh, body of believers. So we are uh, members of one another, and I took the time last time to talk about what that means in relation to various other other uh, scripture. In Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, earlier in this context, Paul, Paul wrote, but speaking the truth in love. That's a broad general admonition to every believer, 
that we are to speak the truth but within the framework of love. So that is within the framework of loving one another. And I define this in the past as doing that which is best according to the standards of God, not according to what you think is best or what I think is best. We're not manipulating people to do what we think they ought to do, but that our standards for how we uh, love them is determined by who God is and his integrity and his righteousness. So we are to speak the truth in love, uh, may grow up in all things into him who is the head. We are to grow spiritually in this area. And then it says, from whom, that is from Christ, the whole body, because Christ is the head of the body, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So in this analogy, the church, not the local church, but the universal church, the body of Christ, is an organism, not an organization, and its head is Christ, and that the different members of the body of Christ are analogous to the joints, and that we as members of the body of Christ have certain roles and responsibilities uh, toward one another. And part of this, as we supply this through our ministry to one another, uh, it is according to the effective working which every part does its share. Every believer has its role, his place, his ministry within the body of Christ, and together, when we are functioning in that way, it supplies spiritual growth. Now, the primary focus of spiritual growth is always on the Word of God, that we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the Word like a newborn baby, that we may grow by it. We grow by the Word of God. But when we minister in different ways the Word of God to others, that is a secondary or tertiary way that provides for the growth, the health of the body of Christ. So there's an emphasis on the individual members. It's not just the pastor, not just the leadership. It is the individual members of the body of Christ, the individual members sitting in the pew that have a vital role to play in the spiritual well-being of the body of Christ. In Romans 12, 4, and 5, Paul talking about this same analogy of the body, says, For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. Some are visible, some are behind the scenes and not so visible, but we all have different functions. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, I keep pointing this out because this is a concept that is difficult for us to grasp. It runs sort of against the grain of an aspect of our American culture, and that is rugged American individualism. Now, as far as it goes, there are some value, there's much value to that, uh, that, that aspect of our culture, but too often people think that uh, because they're so 
they so emphasize individualism as a result of our culture that they fail to realize the interdependence and interconnectedness that is emphasized in these passages that every believer has a vital role in relation to individual to other believers we're not just individuals going it alone in our spiritual life there is an interconnectedness and an interdependence that is emphasized in the scripture in 1 Corinthians 12:12 12, 12 through 14 Paul says the same thing for as the body is one and has many members But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. And that word for member emphasizes that it is a uh, uh, an organism, not an organization. Uh, this word is never used of animal body parts. It's only used of human body parts. And so it is used to refer to the members of the body of Christ. So all of this is important. Later in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. So there's this emphasis on the role of the individual, but how that then benefits the working of the entire body. It is a team. And when one person fails to carry out his responsibility on the team, then others uh, suffer as a result. When one does well, then everyone else uh, benefits from that. So I started last time just talking about what the Bible teaches about our ministry to one another. This word, alelon uh, in the Greek, it means a reciprocity, one person ministering to others in a group. So most of these letters in the New Testament were addressed to congregations. And so the idea is how members of a congregation are going to minister to one another uh, within that congregation. And I remind you that part of the responsibility of the pastor, teacher, and the evangelist, the leaders that God gives to a congregation, is to train or equip the members to minister to one another. It's not the job of the pastor or the board of deacons or if you have a board of elders. It's not their job to minister to one another other than within the responsibility that they have individually. It's the role of the congregation to minister to one another. And that so often we see ministries that should develop within a congregation from the bottom up. That is, from the individual members as they grow and mature spiritually, saying, well, what about this? Well, you want to take that on? That's not the role of pastor to do that. It's the the role of the church to do that. It's a role of individual believers to exercise that initiative and develop these things. And I'll talk some more about that uh, later on. We are to uh, love one another. The most common command in the New Testament, 15 different times articulated by John, Peter, and Paul. 
And these other one another's all manifest that. So the primary command in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? As Christ loved us. That's what he says. That's a, that's a, you can't do that on your own. I can't do it on my own. We can't just gen it up. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to love one another like this. As Christ loved us means it's a supernatural aspect to this because he was absolutely without sin. We're not. We still struggle in loving one another with the fact that it's really all about me and not about you. So there's that struggle with our sin nature and our own arrogance. We are to love according to how Christ loved us. That can only be produced by God the Holy Spirit. The first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned by Paul in Galatians 5.22 is love. We are to love one another, and this is not a kind of love we can do on our own, but it is a product of our walk by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus repeated this several times in the upper room discourse. Uh, John fifteen twelve. Uh, this co- is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. John fifteen seventeen repeats that. John uh, fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. A term for fellowship. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. John fifteen eleven. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you. And that your joy may be full. Joy is another aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Romans thirteen eight says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. So how do we apply this? That's what we're going to get into in these other passages. How do we actually put this into practice? in our day-to-day lives. So I'm going to point out some things that we need to keep in mind as we interact with other people. Uh, I, I, I love the, a line that's in the first episode of this current series of All Creatures Great and Small, uh, where Siegfried is talking and says, the animals aren't the problem, it's the people. We have to deal with people who have sin natures. And so that makes it somewhat difficult. And we have to learn how to interact in loving one another when we're dealing with other sinful creatures. And we ourselves still struggle with our own self-absorption, self-absorption and arrogance. As we go through this, I want to give you some things that I have observed This is not from the scripture. This is from my own observation. That in all of our lives, we have different levels of friendship and different levels of intimacy with other people. So I've put these concentric circles on there and labeled them A, B, C, and D. So the outer ring of friendship, I would say, is basically acquaintances. It may be a neighbor, maybe a coworker, maybe someone you sit in front of or behind a church and you say a few words here and there, maybe once a week or however often you see the other person. And that is a very distant level of acquaintance. A 
another level, the C level, which is uh, the third level out, where you have something in common with somebody. You share an interest. You share a hobby. Or maybe you play golf together or you work out together or you have kids in the same school. And so you spend time with the other person on the basis of this particular interest or hobby. And so over time, you may develop a more intimate friendship. Maybe you won't, but it's a a friendship that is limited. Maybe it is someone else uh, at church, and you develop more of a uh, knowledge of that person, more of a friendship because of your involvement at church. But it's still not at a more, a, a really a more uh, intimate level. B, this is someone you would consider as a friend or close friend. And this number, as you, as you get towards the center of this, the number of people that fit the definition in your life or mine gets smaller and smaller. And so here you have someone that you consider a friend, that you talk with frequently, that you spend a lot of time with or socialize with or pray with. And this, there's a spectrum here because you may be closer to uh, C at the beginning and then towards the end you may get closer to A, but you're not really that A level of friendship. It's interesting, I didn't realize this in my life, but I know this is, this is true that back in the early 90s there uh, developed an organization I had uh, great suspicions of uh, called the Promise Keepers, and it was a ministry to men uh, to build relationships with other Christian men. And I was talking with a uh, friend of mine at the time who is still a friend of mine even though we don't see each other. The things that we once did together and everything established a basis for ongoing uh, friendship. But he said, he said, Robbie, you know, we live and operate as pastors within a framework of a lot of other men. We have close male friends. He said a lot of men have no male friends. They have a wife and five daughters. They have three granddaughters. They work in an office where they may, may be one or two other men, but then a lot of the uh, uh, secretarial staff or administrative staff are women, and they don't really have uh, anything close to a close friendship with the other men with whom they may work. And so something like this is a gr- has great appeal to some men because they can go and just spend some time with men. I, th- I think that's important. One reason we have a men's a prayer breakfast, it gives us time as men to get to know each other, to get to know some of the, uh, where the older men can get to know some of the younger men, uh, come to understand who may have leadership potential in the church, lots of different, lots of different benefits. So this is a, uh, an area where a lot of us think of think of friends, and we need to have friends. Some people, that's very hard. Some people are extremely private, shy. They don't lend themselves to close friends very easily. 
And for all of us, as we progress through level B with a friend to level A, this takes time. I have some close friends. I am very blessed in long time, close male friends that um, have nothing to do with ministry. Most of them have not are not involved with any ministry that that I'm in, but we have known each other in different circles throughout our lives. I meet with two men on a regular basis. We meet once every month or two and have lunch together. And we first met each other when we were about 12 years old in summer band learning how to play our instruments. And neither one of them were believers at the time. And one of them was sort of, I I think of him at the time as when... uh, if you were to look at a dictionary under the term, um, you know, what would it be, obnoxious junior high kid, his picture would be there. I would thank God that he went to a different high school than I did and had, was crestfallen when I saw him entering in the military science building in, when I was in college. I rejoice that now I was his pledge master when he sought to join our organization and I got to make him do push-ups to my heart's delight. (laughs) He became a believer in his 20s, and we reconnected at some reunions. The other man became a believer when he was in uh, university. And both of them are deacons in other churches, and we have a tremendous time of Christian fellowship along with, um, you know, other things, and we, we meet together. We pray for one another, not when we meet together for lunch, but I know we do. And one of them has, has made it clear in his will that I am the one who is to preach the gospel at his funeral. I find that to be uh, quite a shift from the way he was when we were in junior high. You never know how these friendships are going to develop. But there's a level of intimacy there that works in some areas but not in other areas. That's just the way life is. And then we have those at the A level that are very close, usually extremely long-time friends, and we have very few of these. Maybe some people may not even think they have one other than their spouse. And there are some things they are not comfortable sharing with their spouse. That happens. That's the way we are as people. Others have two or three that are uh, very, they're very, very close with, and they can share uh, and discuss difficulties, problems, challenges with things of that nature. But it's important to understand where you are in terms of these kinds of cycles, circles rather, uh, as we minister to one another, especially the ministries that have something of a negative aspect to them. Because if you have a level D or level C uh, intimate level of intimacy with people, you ha- don't ha- have not established a framework whereby you can uh, admonish one another. That comes within a relationship where trust is established. And it takes wisdom to understand these things. And this is why I think one reason Paul says in, in Philippians 1.10 that we, uh, our, our love grows in knowledge and discernment. 
A lot of people think they're exercising love to one another when they have no discernment whatsoever. And rather than helping somebody, they offend somebody. That happens. So we have to be wise and we have to be uh, exercise levels of maturity, understand where we are there. The other thing I want to point out before we continue in the other aspects is that as we grow and develop, we, we have... Uh, we see needs in the local church and maybe applications of some of these one another commands. And so uh, we have to go back to verse 12, that the gifts of evangelist and pastor teacher, which are the ones that have continued, are for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. I need to equip you to be able to love one another, care for one another, serve one another, all those other things, which is what I'm doing but also because we look out in the congregation and we see certain needs whereby people can utilize their gifts in terms of this one another ministry. And I can think of two examples. I can think of many others, but I'm going to use two examples that I am very pleased to see in this congregation. One is, and I'm going to embarrass him, one is Jeff Phipps. Jeff saw a long time ago uh, a need to have a ministry to our kids, to our young people, and preparing them for life and for college. And he is cl- close friends with a number of pastors. And so in talking with them, that led to the development of Camparete. West Houston Bible Church, as the pastor or as deacons, had nothing to do with that. That is the ideal in how ministries are to go. Uh, People who are on the board have their hands full. Pastor has his hands full in any congregation. And people come along and they say, I think this is a great ministry. Great. How are you going to do it? What do you want to do? It needs to come from the bottom up, not from the top down. Another is that I was so pleased to learn about many years ago as we developed and after the church operated for three or four years, we had several men in the church over a period of two or three years to be taken to be with the Lord, and that left their wife as a widow, and these widows got together. And they ministered to one another and they prayed for one another. They gave each other practical encouragement on how to handle the loneliness, how to handle the grief, how to live life now that you were on your own. That did not come from the deacons or from me. That came because mature believers recognized a spiritual need within the congregation, exercising their spiritual gifts. That is the ideal. What you find in most churches, and we generally call these program churches, is that the pastor says, oh, I need to get my people doing this, that, and the other thing. And so what he does is he goes out and he finds this plan and procedure, and it all comes from the top down, and you try to get everybody on board to do it, but they haven't spiritually grown enough to know how to do it. It has to come from within the members of the congregation. That's the natural growth of a congregation. And you'll see people come along with that. So that's part of what we do. The third point in this is Galatians 5.13. Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
And so in this process of spiritual growth, we're interacting with other believers. In the context of Galatians 5, you had a problem with a group that were uh, telling people, contrary to Paul's teaching and the teaching of Scripture, that they needed to get... um, follow the law in order for for either salvation or sanctification. And so they were creating problems, and they were using their liberty in a uh, wrong way. And so Paul is correcting that and saying, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but you should serve one another. Serving one another is an aspect of what Paul is talking about back in what I just mentioned, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Now, the word ministry here is the word uh, from uh, diakoneo, the verb to serve one another, where we get our word deacon. And it is a synonym for the word that is used over here to serve one another is duleo, which is the word for sometimes it's trans, the noun is translated slave. Uh, but they represent the same context that we're to serve, serve one another, but it's through love. It's within that particular framework, wanting to do what is best for others. Now we always have to be careful with that. Because you get a certain number of people that once you start talking about your ministry to one another, serving one another, helping one another, praying for one another, that they need to learn those boundaries I just talked about between those levels of intimacy. Because it's easy to go with, I want to help you to I'm a busybody. I'm sticking my nose where it doesn't belong. I have no framework for getting involved in your life, and all of a sudden I see something and think I know something about your life, and I just intervene and interfere and stick my nose where it doesn't belong. Paul addressed that in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 9 uh, through 12, where he says, concerning brotherly love, that's what we're talking about. That you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught, taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. We grow in our capacity for love for one, for one another. And then he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life tranquil life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we command you. So you have to learn that comes with maturity is when you can say something, when you should say something, and when you really shouldn't say anything. And it always needs to be in a context in relationships where trust has been established and a, a certain level of friendship has been established. Now, one reason I say that is because we live in an age where we've lost the concept of privacy, and we've done that to ourselves. We want to, we post pictures and we post all kinds of things on social media. Social media is not the place to exercise any levels of these one another. Neither, you know, and especially if it's one of the negatives, like admonish one another, things of that nature, you don't do it through email or through text messages. If you can't do it face to face in the concept, in the context of a close friendship, then you probably ought not do it. 
I have discovered that you can't even talk about a lot of mundane things with somebody via email or text because a lot is lost in context. And we're losing that in our culture. So people say one thing and they mean it one way. The other person's in a bad mood, reads it another way. And now you created a problem rather than move towards a solution. So there are ways to do things and ways not to do things, and we have a culture that has lost in a lot of ways how to do things. We're members of one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now what does he do? How does he support this? You have to understand the baptism by the Holy Spirit. For by means of one spirit, the spirit is not the one doing the baptism. We've gone over this many, many times. I taught on this in in uh, Tucson Wednesday night, going through the whole uh, doctrine of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, looking at the uh, seven passages, six of which make it very clear that it is Christ who does the baptizing. And in most of those passages, makes it clear he does it by using the Holy Spirit to bring about our new union with Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 emphasizes the fact that, that it is still, as in all these other passages, the Spirit is used as the instrument or means that Christ uses to effect that union. So it is by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's key. This is a spiritual reality. So we have our chart where we have our eternal realities on the left and temporal realities on the right. And at the instant that we trust in Christ and we are, we put on the new man and that is affected by the baptism by the Holy Spirit described in Romans 6, 3 through, uh, you can go all the way down to verse 12. But it's mostly in verses, uh, Romans 6, 3 through 6, that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So that we may have newness of life. There is this shift that occurs because of that, uh, that position. And so we continue in our study here. That the, in defining this, that the baptism by means of the Spirit is the work of Christ, whereby at the moment of faith alone, in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is a spiritual reality. We don't feel it. It's not repeated. We don't lose it. It is ours for eternity. So there's one baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Christ performs the baptism. The instrument used to effect that identification is the Holy Spirit. And the new condition is into the body of Christ, identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Sorry, I went pretty fast on that shift. We're members of one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25 to 26. And also Romans 12, 5 and Ephesians 4, 25. We have already gone over those pass- passages. We are to encourage one another. 
three different times you have these words used. In Romans 1.12, Paul says uh, that I may be encouraged together with you. Now, the together it relates to the fact that you add a prefix soon, S-U-N, to the Greek word, which means together with. So it's the same root, parakaleo. It's translated encouragement. It's translated comfort. It's translated uh, exhortation, different ways, and it literally means called alongside, but it's more than that. It, it calls for a um, a degree of maturity to be able to do this wisely. And that comes, if you look at 2 Corinthians 1, we comfort one another with the comfort with which we have been comforted. So if you haven't grown very much in the spiritual life and gone through some difficult times where you experience the comfort of the Lord, it's difficult for you to comfort others well. I knew a pastor from a local church here in Houston, and uh, m- many pastors that I know are much more cerebral in their approach to study and to life. This man, and I believe we have multiple spiritual gifts. I believe his spiritual gift of pastor-teacher was, was somewhat um, modified by a gift of mercy. He oozed mercy. His wife had suffered several strokes, and over the course of about 15 or 20 years, she had a health condition where she had these series of strokes. And he not only had to take care of her, but he had to allow many people in the church to help take care of her so that he could fulfill his responsibilities as pastor. This man knew what it was to deal with difficult circumstances and the problems that come as a result of health problems, medical problems, loss of a loved one, all of these things tied together. And if you had a problem of any nature and you sat down with him, you knew that that this guy really could relate. He knew what you were talking about, and he understood how God comforted him and that he would help you understand how God would comfort you. So we have these commands here in Scripture. Uh, positively, we are to encourage one another, comfort one another. Sometimes this has a little bit of a negative in the sense that it is to help straighten someone out uh, and move them in the right direction. We're to comfort one another with these words, Paul says, after describing the rapture, that when at time of death you comfort people with the words of Scripture, that runs counter to the popular understanding in our culture. You comfort people with the truth. You don't comfort people. It's nice to get the hugs. It's nice to get the... Uh, the statements of sympathy and the superficial statements of encouragement, but that doesn't get you through the difficult times when perhaps you're wide awake through the night and dealing with sorrow and grief and loneliness. But the Word of God is what gives you and sustains you through those times. Hymns may be nice, but I've always been a lover of great hymns, but in the times I've gone through grief and uh, deep distress, it has been God's word that comforted. And that's what Paul says in First Thessalonians 4.18, 
And in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, 5.11, he says, Rather, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as also you are doing. So I'm going to stop here on this point, and we'll pick it up next week to finish up. But this is so important for us as individuals ministering to one another as a body of Christ, where we are to fulfill these responsibilities to one another, to understand that there are right ways and wrong ways to do some of these things, and that we need to develop and understand the levels of intimacy that we have with other people and when we can and when we ought not uh, be involved. Uh, That takes discernment. Discernment comes from bad experience usually making mistakes. That's how we grow. But we are, above all, to be understanding the Scripture and to envelop everything in prayer. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning to study your Word, to be reminded of our individual responsibilities as to believers, and to think a little more profoundly about what these commands mean and not so superficially as it is usually often communicated by others in the culture or others in some churches, but that this should be these responsibilities should be done as an outgrowth of our own spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Father, we are thankful, too, that we have so many in this congregation that are involved in ministry to one another, that have been involved in developing ministries that are vital to the health and growth of this church. And we pray that we might continue to see signs of this, for these are signs of a healthy church. And above all, we pray that anyone listening today or listening at some time in the future on the Internet that the primary issue in life is our eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That we come to understand that we can have salvation not because of who we are or what we do, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And we pray that as individuals we might have a real desire to make the gospel clear to those around us that they might come to a clear understanding of how to be saved. And we pray that you would prepare them for the gospel message. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.